0: What are going on, peeps? What are going on? How you doing? It's Valerie here and we're reading the Reluctant Buddhist and we're on to chapter 11 and it's called A Long and Healthy Life. So, Buddhism is very concerned with the issue of health and the pursuit of long and active life. Just as we are responsible for all the causes we make, so we are responsible for taking the greatest care of our health. And doing all we can to develop our knowledge of what it is and what is not likely to lead to a long and healthy life. Having the life, brings, having the life brings with it the responsibility not to squander or waste it. We chant about it on a daily basis. In one of the later chapters of the Lotus Sutra, Shakyamuni tells us a story about a wise physician and his many children. The doctor has to travel away for a while and when he is away, the children eat something that is obviously bad for them and they feel recklessly ill. When he returns, he finds them sick and ill and in great pain on the floor. The doctor immediately sees how far gone the children are and then he has no time to lose. He quickly diagnoses what is wrong with them and he prepares an appropriate medicine and tries to get them to take it. Some of the children immediately recognise that it is their father treating them and accept the medicine. The pain begins to subside and they begin to emerge from the illness. But some of the children are in so much pain that they don't recognise who the doctor is and refuse to take the medicine. They are in dire straits and it is only when at last they recognize precisely who the physician is and so take the medicine that they too begin to come around and emerge eventually from their pain and suffering. This is of course a parable and like most parable it works on many levels. One of them undoubtedly is that the physician is, is to be such as the Buddha himself Shukamundi coming to the world with his great teaching of self-help. The many children are all ordinary human beings, as indeed suffering in various ways from the three universal poisons of greed, anger and ignorance. The medicine that is offered is the Lotus Sutra itself. Those who are prepared to take the teachings into their life can overcome the sufferings that are inherent in human life at another level however this story can be seen as the buddhist prescription for a long and healthy life that is to say it is not simply about overcoming the challenges and the problems that we encounter as a normal part of our everyday lives it is also about applying the prescription or the practice in overcoming genuine illnesses of any kind that afflict us from time to time both in body and mind from brief transient illnesses like colds and flus that might keep us in bed for a couple of days and make us feel a bit wrecked wrecked, to longer term conditions that to attack our whole body of life like depressions and phobias right the way through to powerful life shortening illness, illnesses like cancer and heart disease at the very core of the buddhist view of healing lies the idea that we don't simply Hand over responsibility for our health into the hands of medical professionals. We need both the best medical knowledge that we can obtain, but also aided and abetted by our own natural innate self healing powers. Nichiren Buddhism teaches that chanting is in itself a powerful, energising, and revitalising process it helps us to release the energy we need to challenge the negativity and the sense of defeat of personal frailty that often comes with sickness and replace them with hope and optimism. Hope is in itself a great healer. Without it there could be no determination to overcome the illness and there is an ever-growing body of scientific and medical research support and, bu- and buttress the view that a strong and positive outlook is of immense importance both in resisting and overcoming illness of any kind. There is not to say that Buddhism is in any way underestimates the powerful benefits of, benefits of mainstream medicine. Indeed, The very reverse is true. It constantly advises its followers always to seek the very best medical advice and care available, but at the same time in no way to underestimate the importance of the healing energy that can only come from within. We have the ability to strengthen and enhance our own natural immune response and no medicine, however rare, can replace that. Just as Buddhism does not equate happiness with the absence of problems, so it does not equate good health with the absence of sickness. It, it goes further than that. It sees good health in the broadest sense as a state of life that is not simply free from physical or mental ailment, but one that is marked by vitality and energy and imbued with a sense of optimism and purpose if we have that image in our minds we can see if we are selling ourselves short so to speak if we settle for no more than a freedom from anxiety or worry are we we might ask ourselves generally making the most of our lives it is interesting that something very close to this idea has been adopted by the world health organization in its definition of good health where it talks of a state of physical mental and social well-being rather than simply the absence of disease or infirmity. But we have, of course, to be very cautious in this area. Doctors and scientists make it clear that it is very difficult indeed to set up anything approaching conclusive experiments to illustrate the precise correlation between psychology and disease. The relationship between how we are thinking and feeling and the process of any illness, of an illness. But that having been said, There is a growing number of medical papers that seem to illustrate a connection between emotional states and certain illnesses, hope and optimism linked to good health and shorter healing periods, while prolonged anxiety and melancholy has been associated with life shortening illnesses such as cancer and heart disease. Bearing both those views in mind, both the caution and the optimism, let us look just very briefly at some accounts of people who have turned to their practice to challenge profound illnesses of many kinds. There are many stories available in various journals of people who have been through similar experiences. These are neither the most remarkable nor in any way the most dramatic. These are simply ordinary people who happen to practice in my particular corner of London. The Story of the Quiteri 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 is a young married woman in her late 20s. She has had a very ordinary life so far as health is concerned with no particularly outstanding illnesses or ailments. Shortly after the birth of her first child she encountered very severe stress in that her son her baby son Kainu suffered from an unsteady and irregular heartbeat. In In his first year of life The condition became serious and enough to require hospitalisation and an operation to fit a pacemaker. The little boy seemed to recover very rapidly and was soon developing normally, learning to crawl and then walk and then be able to speak and go to play school with other little children of his own age. However... There was, perhaps, inevitably, that constant latent anxiety that her son might suffer some catastrophic reverse. Despite her anxiety, Kateri seemed normal enough. There was no overt change in her appearance, but she began to feel increasing, increasing lethargy and weariness. Her body felt bruised and her legs ached. She went to see her doctor, but he could not find anything specific that he could treat, apart from suggesting a healthy, balanced diet and plenty of rest. But the condition got steadily worse. Within a matter of months, she was barely able to get up and look after her child and completely unable to walk up and down stairs because of the pains in her joints. She was sent for a series of urgent blood tests. Several anomalies emerged from the test, but by far the worst alarming was the state of her immune system. It was in a state of collapse. Her white blood cells count, for example, was down below the extreme danger level. At about this time, Quiteri had met someone who practiced Nichiren Buddhism, and she learned about chanting. When she realized just how ill she was, at first she simply and had no idea what to do. Then she decided to give the chanting a chance. As she put it, what have I got to lose? So she determined to chant at least an hour a day, every day, come what may, concentrating on the idea of getting her white cell count back to normal. Other members of the SGI learned about her situation and went round regularly to chant with her. One was a friend who had herself only recently taken up the practice another was a lady who had a very strong practice indeed and who was prepared to give her time to help Quiteri through this crisis the support was crucial kateri found it very difficult to stick to her determination Charton was a wholly new experience and keeping it going for around an hour a day required from her huge amounts of determination two weeks or so later quittery was required to go back to the hospital for a checkup. When the blood samples had been taken, the doctor asked her what she was taking in addition to her medication. Somewhat puzzled, Quiterie replied that she wasn't taking anything that she knew of. The doctor then asked her if she had changed anything about the way she lived. At first, she couldn't think of anything, and then she said that she had taken up chanting every day. As Quateri tells it, the young lady doctor rolled her eyes as if in disbelief and said something like, oh, really? But she then said that whatever she was doing, she should continue to do it because her white blood cell count was much higher. Still way below what it should be, but higher than the doctor could ever have believed possible in such a short time. This was, of course, huge encouragement. Quateri still found it immensely difficult to chant for an hour on a daily basis, even though she received that which she did so she sorry let me say that again difficult on a daily basis even though she perceived that when she did so she felt strengthened but she did what she felt able to do a week or so later her work her white blood count was very much closer to normal levels and quateri felt herself to be much stronger she no longer spent most of the day in bed she was able to summon up the strength to go shopping and resume her studies and take up the care of her son again during the day and so on but quateria and her husband now practice both quateria and her husband now practice in buddhism they hold local meetings in their home and quateria has the energy and the vitality to welcome and look after everybody She still gets attacks of fatigue and weariness, however, and when she talked about them, it is clear that she still finds it wholly surprising just how much she has helped out of these attacks by increasing her chanting. Quite recently, for example, when Kainu, now a child of three, went through major heart surgery to re-engineer his pacemaker, Quateri, supported by a group of SGI friends, increased her daily chanting to carry her through the stressful period. She was undoubtedly frightened for her child, but her general health didn't falter. Indeed, she said that she felt so strengthened that she was able to remain buoyant and positive and do what was most important to her, namely to provide most of the care and mothering that Kainu needed herself. The Story of Jocelyn Jocelyn is a young Chinese woman in her mid-thirties. She is single, professionally trained and she has a very busy and active life. She also has a very strong Buddhist practice, chanting at least an hour a day, reading and studying on a regular basis and getting fully involved in discussion groups and other activities with her Buddhist friends. After a year or so, about a year ago or so, Jocelyn began to experience pains in her abdomen. She had a series of tests but no specific cause was identified however over the next few months the pain grew steadily worse until from time to time they prevented her from going to meetings. Eventually doctors identified the cause as a substantial growth in her uterus. It was found to be a non-manigling cyst but her consultant wanted it to be removed as a matter of urgency. Justin, however, wasn't sure what to do. She found it difficult to commit herself to having the operation, even though she was often in considerable pain. She decided to chant about the dilemma for some time, and then she took a remarkably courageous decision. She decided to try to overcome the cyst simply using her Buddhist practice and her considerable knowledge of alternative remedies. So that's what she did. She basically built her life for the time being around the task of getting rid of the cyst, harnessing her strong belief in the beneficial effects of the practice. She made a determination that she would bear the pain, leave her life as ordinary as possible in terms of work, but shape her life to achieve this goal that she had set herself. That might, for example, that meant For example, that she got up earlier every morning so that she could chant a minimum of two hours a day, focusing strongly on the removal of the cyst and the healing of her body. I met Jocelyn many times during this period. She never once complained, even though it was quite clear that she was going through a considerable amount of pain. And she made a huge contribution to the various Buddhists activities that was going on indeed she really if ever talked about her troubles it took two years of immense determination but now she has been reassured by her consultant that the sister's gone along with the pain so the story of margaret margaret is a writer in her mid-fifties she lives alone now although she has been married and had several children she is by nature a very quiet and gentle person and care and carefully guard- guards her privacy She has never had any religious inclinations, but some years ago she felt strongly that she needed some supportive spiritual dimension in her life. And she tried a form of Buddhist meditation with some success. Some years ago she encountered Nichism Buddhism and was attracted by what it seems to promise. She tried chanting for a while but found that it didn't really work for her and gave it up after a few months. But she was still looking for something that she felt was missing at the centre of her life. And after a gap of some months, she came back to Nichiren Buddhism. She went through what might be called an extended period of ex- experimentation with chanting and going to discussion meetings and talking to people. She wasn't in any hurry. Eventually, she felt able to commit herself to the practice on a regular basis. One of the comments she made not long after this event is, I think well worth noting she said is somehow strengthens your spirit you don't feel so scared of what life might bring not very long after margaret had committed to the practice she was dismayed to find that she had a well-defined lump in her breast margaret has had a deep fit of illness and of cancer in particular for many years some 20 years earlier she had to undergo several quite difficult operations to move to remove benign lumps from near one breast. The initial diagnosis was not hopeful. Doctors made it clear that they thought that they would have to operate quite quickly. However, more extensive tests indicated to Margaret's profound relief that through the lump was, though the lump was large, it was not in fact malignant. Despite that, the doctors advised that she that given her age and the size of the lump, it would be prudent for it to be removed margaret remember remember margaret remember was a young buddhist with less than a year's committed and regular practice behind her indeed this is one of the reasons why it seems to me that this experience is so so valuable with great courage margaret decided that she wasn't going to have the operation she was going to put all her trust in the strength of the practice and she was going to chant the lump out of her life She had been chanting strongly to get through the stress of the process of analysis and diagnosis. Now she allocated more time each day, two hours, three hours, sometimes supported by a number of her relatively new SGI colleagues. For a while, there was no change, but Margaret had accepted that it wasn't going to be an easy process. Within less than a year, however, the lump began to diminish. Margaret went through several medical examinations and steadily the lump went away. Not only has it not reappeared since, but Margaret's energy and vitality are remarkably higher than they had been for several years. Margaret is very reluctant to tell the story to others, but she has no doubt in her mind that her sheer determination to be better enabled her to rid herself of the unwelcome lump. So what sort of conclusion might we make? There are many comments that might be made about these experiences, but two seem to me to be particularly important. As I have already mentioned, they were not in any way specifically selected. They simply occurred in my own local area to people whom I know personally. I know, as a matter of fact, rather than of supposition, that many people practicing in other parts of the UK and elsewhere have similar experiences to relate. The second point is rather broader and is that, although I am writing as a practicing Buddhist, from a Buddhist perspective, I am not suggesting that helping oneself to heal in this way brought about by a combination of strong practice and mainstream medicine is a Buddhist preserve. It is quite clear that self-healing has been recorded over many centuries in many cultures and in many religious environments. Moreover, a great deal of research has been carried out in recent years to explore the extent to which faith and prayer or whatever kind can have a beneficial effect upon rate of healing. Dr. Herbert Benson, for example, Professor of of Medicine at Harvard University in Boston, conducted a long series of clinical studies in the 1990s into the effectiveness of various forms of prayer, and religious practice. The results of these studies are set out in his account. Timeless healing, the power and biology of belief. His conclusion essentially is that many forms of repetitive prayer arising from faith can have powerful benefit effects on critical psychological factors, such as low blood pressure, stable heart rates and heightened immune systems. That is to say many kinds of prayer used on regular basis and importantly linked to a fundamental belief system have been shown to help people to recover from their illnesses or their operation more rapidly or more completely often against difficult odds dr benson coined a memorable phrase to define the healing process he described it as returning to remembered wellness For the multiplicity of studies of this nature in many parts of the world, it would seem that the power of faith and prayer in many forms to revitalize and stimulate the effectiveness of the immune system is difficult to ignore. A positive approach to life, whatever its source, is is ill-given. And Buddhism clearly recognizes the validity and the virtue of the world's rich diversity of spiritual religious traditions no one of which has a monopoly of the truth from the viewpoint of niches and Buddhism, then the process of chanting puts the control or the choice back into our hands whatever the nature of the attack upon us it enables us to shift our position from the negative to the positive from being weighed down and in some measure in some measure diminished by the illness to challenging it to having hope and courage and confidence that we can overcome it rather than relying solely on the efficiency of the medical treatment we are receiving so the concept of visualization in his book entitled modern buddhist healing charles atkins added adds a simply slightly different but very illuminating perspective to the sorts of experience that we have been talking about He describes a form of therapy that involves chanting while focusing your thoughts on or actually visualizing the particular parts of the body that you are deeply concerned about. As you do so, you imagine or visualize the body mushrooming its healing forces and marshalling its healing forces and bringing them to bear on the affected area. It might, for example, be a broken arm that you are recovering from or a heart or open heart surgery or a lump in the breast or persistent headaches but whatever the illness or the cause of suffering it is essentially a method that enables you to concentrate and focus your inner energies like a laser you might say onto the areas of the body where healing is most needed charles atkins has been a Nichiren buddhist for over 30 years and he poured all his faith and energy into into this method which he calls mantra-powered visualisation to help him overcome cancer, a life-threatening attack on, Hod- on Hodgkin lymphoma that he experienced when he was in his mid-30s. As he writes, For me, mantra-powered visualisation was a powerful tool against illness when I wasn't even strong enough to pick up a hammer. Words have power. Some might scoff at the ability of some strange sounding word to produce such exciting results. Just the phrase I love you or I hate you has a powerful effect on our psyche. It is imperative that we strengthen our ability to take firm control of our mind. Through the determination of our spirit, especially when our body seems to be doing the opposite of what we consciously want it to do, At the core of our being is a master physician, a medicine king, if you will, who can quicken recovery with the help of your doctor. It is an approach that is very much in accord with the general principle that in chanting about any problem we encounter in life, we should chant not about the problem, but about the solution that may seem to be something of a quibble. But in fact, it is crucial if we chant about the problem itself, we are in a sense pouring our energies into it, into the negative end of the equation, making it loom even larger in our lives. Whereas as soon as we switch our attention to the solution or to the kind of outcome we wish to see, we are immediately looking forward to the resolution we wish to achieve and energizing our spiritual resources into that direction we are looking forward to this to that is rather than than back we are looking forward that is rather than back one of the greatest qualities in buddhism that makes it potentially such a power for good in our lives is that it provides us with a clear psychological framework for looking at everything that occurs to us including sickness in a positive light as a powerful source of growth however much of a paradox that may seem, however difficult a challenge it may be initially, you can see that it is continually self-reinforcing process. The more you do it, the more you can do it. Thus, the more we find it possible to see everything that happens to us, the knocks and the setbacks, as well as the joys and the successes. From this standpoint, the more our confidence grows, we develop what Daisika Aikida calls a fighting spirit. We begin to see that we do indeed have within us this ability to transform everything even the challenge of severe illness into a source of growth central to this understanding is the buddhist concept of the oneness of body and mind oh that was deep people so tomorrow chapter 12 is oneness of the body and mind so it's a continuation of that really this is why he mentioned it as the last. Anyway, until tomorrow. That was really deep. Take care, people. Watagwan, peace, Watagwan. How you doing? It's Valerie here. And we are reading The Reluctant Buddhist. We're on to chapter 10. And this is going to get interesting because it's called The Challenge of Change. So... We practice to shift our life from the lower worlds with their powerfully negative effects on our attitude and behaviour towards the higher life states of learning and realisation, buddhahatra and buddhahood. As we do that, as we seek to move our whole life towards the positive end of the spectrum, So the promise is that we are also changing our environment as we change, as we move away from anger, say, with its basic concentration on our own ego, towards a more compassionate and responsive approach to others. So we feel those qualities are increasingly reflected back to us from our environment. The challenges and the problems are no less frequent or severe. Indeed, they may well increase. The fundamental difference lies in the clarity with which we perceive them and the strength and ability to respond to them. Clarity is an important factor. Nicholson describes one of the main benefits of the practice as being the greater clarity of vision that it brings. What he describes as a purification of the senses. We see opportunities, for example, that we might not otherwise have noticed or see problems right arising at an earlier stage when they can be more easily resolved. People who practice practice talk frequently about things seem to seeming to run more, more smoothly for them or about happening or about happening to be in the right place at the right time or about a fortuitous meeting that just happens to present a complex completely unexpected opportunity we are told that there are no coincidences in buddhism the apparent smoothness and the apparently fortuitous events are happening because we are seeing things more clearly and responding to them more positively spirit spirit dark it's the same principle spirit puts things in situations do you know manifestation anyway <clears throat> There can be a profound change too in terms of hopes and ambitions and expectations, what we are prepared to demand from our lives. It is frequently the case, for example, that we are allowed ourselves to come to terms with a situation or set of circumstances, despite the fact that deep within us we know the situation is unsatisfactory or even the cause of a great deal of unhappiness in our lives. It might be a job that provides no opportunity for advancement or relationship that we have neglected. Or a family situation that has been filled with anger through fear or empathy or lack of courage or simply because we have no idea how to initiate a change without causing a rapture. We swallow it. We learn to live with those sorts of situations dominating much of our lives, often for year after year, often year after year. As we all know, few things are quite as difficult as affecting genuine change in our behaviour or attitudes it has taken our lifetime to build them up so it takes real energy and determination to set out to change them they are all that we they are all that we know perhaps above all we we need hope a real sense of things can be changed one of the statements more commonly made about this practice and one that is embedded itself in my mind very early on about after i started chanting is that when you are faced with a difficult situation and have no idea where to turn when you start to chant about it as if out of nowhere comes hope but of course it isn't from nowhere it is from within and it is the initial spark that is needed to ignite the process of changing a difficult situation the hope may give rise to anger that you have allowed the situation to persist for so long Or it may inspire the inner resolution to do something about it. But however it expresses itself, it means that the process of change has already started. It may well be that the knowledge that some action has been taken to change things has lain dormant within your life for a long time. But the fear of change has been too great or the circumstances have never seemed quite right we are all very skilled at procrastination at convincing ourselves that now isn't the best moment to face up to such difficult challenge but as you continue to chant about the situation not necessarily with any profound conviction or with any clear idea of just how you might be able to resolve it out of nowhere comes the hope and the courage to tackle it buddhists will talk frequently of how after months or even years of haziness suddenly they become clear about what action needs to be taken and of being able to face up to the task of initiating that action we might well have to take tough decisions that will disturb other people's lives in challenging aspects of a relationship for example buddhism does not teach that we should not take that action because it disturbs or challenges other people only that we should take it with compassion for the other person's needs and accepting full responsibility for the causes we are making. The time frame in which that change takes place is in, in our life and in our environment will of course vary immensely. Since our circumstances and our environment are unique, it will also vary in relation to the commitment and sincerity of the practice. The fundamental promise of Nietzsche Buddhism is that the benefits will begin to emerge. The changes will begin to take place as soon as we begin to chant. There isn't some sort of preliminary qualifying period. We don't have to build up a balance as the bank, so to speak. That's all very well, I can hear you say, for those who are lucky enough to believe in the practice. But what about those who have doubts? There are many Buddhist commentaries that tell us that we should never have doubts. I don't personally see how that is possible. Doubts are a normal part of all our lives, just as negativity negativity is inherent in all our lives. The dark and light energies. Although it is important to be aware that they are not quite the same thing. Doubt breeds caution and there is nothing wrong with a bit of caution in a dangerous world. We might want to call it prudence, if that was not such an uncool word these days. (coughs) Negativity, however, can disarm us or render us immobile. It might tell us, for example, that Buddhist practice may well be able to deal with other people's problems, but not this one. Not the one that happens to be bugging us because it is special or deep rooted or because it has been part of our lives for so long, or because it involves a particularly intractable relationship or whatever. Our own problems always seem to have a uniquely difficult twist to them. There is never any shortage of costumes for us to dress our negativity in. Our evil twin is a master of disguise. In other words, we have to learn to walk the tightrope between prudent caution and disabling negativity. That negativity will always be there. Hear it, see it for what it is, but Nicholson encourages don't give in to it. The act of recognition alone helps us to challenge it and every time we do so, the more we come to believe in our ability to overcome it. Time and time again we return to this basic premise, Buddhism is not a soft touch, life is tough and what we are trying to achieve requires real effort and application. What we are trying to do is to get better at seeing problems for what they are, generating the courage to face up to them and the perseverance to turn them around. What do we mean by benefits? In taking up this practice, we are being invited to take part in an experiment. We are the focus of the experiment our life is the test bed. Practice, we are told, without being grudging or half-hearted about it, gives it a fair and genuine trial and looks for the benefits in our life. And that word benefits is almost a technical term in Nichiren Buddhism. It carries with it a very special set of meanings. It might seem somewhat strange to be talking about the benefits of practicing a religion at all, since this is not an idea that we have accustomed to apply to religious belief. We don't talk, for example, about the benefits of being a Christian, or not in my experience anyway. In general, we think in terms of religions being principally a question of belief we either believe in the view of life they present or we don't the idea of benefits doesn't really enter into it so that so that can raise a problem when you first encounter buddhism it certainly did with me since on the face of it practicing a religion in the expect, expectations of benefits of whatever kind in this lifetime inevitably seems somewhat self-serving it is important, however, to bear in mind a crucial distinction that has been touched upon, to some extent, in an earlier chapter. <clears throat> most of most the major world religions are God-given and are therefore essentially about the nature of the relationship between an individual and his and her creator. Buddhism, by contrast, is man-made and it is concerned essentially with an individual's relationship with himself. And the rest of humanity it is its ultimate purpose therefore is to enable ordinary human beings to realize to the full their own unique potential so that they are able to create the greatest possible value in any situation for themselves and others that is the key issue it is in that sense that the concept of benefits arises you may you might say in fact that the whole purpose of the practice is after. About benefits in this life in the here and now. It is not in any way esoteric or otherworldly. It is immensely practical and down to earth. It is not about some reward, some paradise in an afterlife. It is about greater happiness amidst the often harshest realities of ordinary daily life. The basic premise is that whatever the life state of the person who takes up the practice and however harsh his or her practice particular reality these benefits are available to all so in that context let's look at what this idea means in practice benefits are described as being experienced in two forms in forms inconspicuous and conspicuous inconspicuous benefits as the name suggests are changes that might occur when within the spiritual or the unseen part of our lives they may also occur relatively slowly over the over many months it's a bit like walking slowly up a hill you don't realize quite how high you've climbed until you turn and look back down at the way at the way you've come in the same way it might be that only when you look back over the months or the years that you realize the extent of the changes that have taken place anxieties that you may have had all your life for example no longer weigh so heavily people gain control of coherence corrosive anger or cynicism for example that may have caused great damage to themselves and their relationships or they become able to combat depression more effectively or find that they have much more self-confidence in personal relationships i have seen many people who have just started to practice begin to tackle problems in their relationships that they simply hadn't had the courage to confront for years others blossom in a matter of a few months and go from being somewhat withdrawn and diff- and defiant d- diffident in public situations to having the self-confidence to debate and discuss complex issues freely in an open forum <clears throat> as you might expect inconspicuous benefits are very personal and unique to our own character and circumstances but as you can also tell from the brief sketches above they are profound significance when we think of the sum total of pleasure and joy we have in life it may sound somewhat superficial and indeed it may well be although it's none of the less true to say that one of the things that struck me most when i first ventured into buddhist beatings was just how much people smiled and laughed even when i happen to know that several among them are facing quite difficult challenges in their personal circumstances Moreover, people always seem to have the energy and the vitality to support one another with tremendous warmth and sincerity. I'm not saying, of course, that these circumstances are unique to Buddhism, only that it is a notable feature of Buddhist groups when they get together at regular discussion meetings and other events. There is a very strong awareness of the value of mutual support, and it is worth spending a moment or two to examine the implications of that since it is wholly relevant to this issue of inconspicuous benefit so low sense of worth however independently minded we we may be or think we are we all need support isolation the sense of being pretty much on your own with no one to turn to for help or companionship and a low sense of self-worth are well documented as being among the major causes of chronic depression As it happens, women are considerably more likely to experience the condition than men. I don't know that anyone has come up with a comprehensive thesis to explain this difference between the sexes, but one of the suggestions that has been put forward is that even in this modern age of equality, women are still more likely to be at home than men, caring for children perhaps, and therefore more likely to feel caught up in a round of somewhat tedious, repetitive tasks day after day after day, from which they find it difficult to escape. But, is, but it is a situation not necessarily linked to home life. A major study carried out recently in England, for example, showed a similar effect among junior civil servants, people who tend to spend their days working, carrying out a, a round of repetitive and uninspiring tasks. To the researchers complete surprise, these lower level ad- administrative staff With generally very low levels of pressure or stress in their working day, were nevertheless far more likely to experience various forms of heart and arterial disease than their highly pressured overloaded supervisors. The underlying stress, it was concluded, could not from overwork, but from the burden of routine and repetition and the absence of challenge. But the key point I wish to make is that although depression has been seen in the past largely as a psychological ailment, a matter of the mind, so to speak, there is now very considerable research to show that severe depression can have a powerful effect on several major bodily systems such as heart rate and hormone levels and menstrual cycle, as well as being linked to a heightened risk of cardiovascular disease if this is the case it suggests that factors that would seem to be quite widespread in society such as a low sense of self-worth or a prevailing feeling of isolation or or having a little control over one's daily life are not simply the causes of a great deal of personal unhappiness their effect can be much broader and longer term they can it would seem have a profound influence upon total bodily health including the incidence of major life sorry incidence of major life shortening illnesses such as cancer and heart disease it is all it is against this sort of background that we can begin to evaluate the truly beneficial effects of what are called inconspicuous benefits once again i am not suggesting that these kinds of beneficial effects can only be achieved by buddhist practice there is considerable research to so show that a religious dimension of whatever kind, kind in one's life can have a powerful beneficial effect on general health. All I am saying is that there is not the slightest doubt that these kinds of beneficial life-enhancing for efforts effects are experienced by many thousands of people around the world who have chosen to base their lives on the practice of Niches in Buddhism. So cons- conspicuous benefits... Conspicuous benefits are, as the name suggests, far more apparent. They relate to all the tangible material elements that make up so much of the texture of our daily lives. So, conspicuous benefits might include such things as better living circumstances, a better house or a better job, a higher salary, or generally more favorable, more stable financial situation. Nichiren Buddhism is quite clear on this point. It teaches since we have both physical and spiritual needs, we must tend to both, if we are to achieve the most fulfilling and creative life of which we are capable. Buddhism is daily life and earthly desires, as they are called, needs or wishes that relate to the material aspects of our lives, as an integral and essential part of this life. Thus, Nietzscheism Buddhism is not about giving things up. It argues that it is perfectly normal and natural part of our humanity to desire a better home or a better paid or more satisfying job or a more fulfilling relationship. So, we shouldn't in any way try to reject those natural desires as being somehow unworthy of our spiritual self. Indeed, the reverse is true. When we bring these life objectives into our practice and chant to achieve them, they can become the root to our human re- revolution, in the sense that whatever it is that stimulates us to chant, the very process of chanting begins to draw forth the courage and the life force, and the compassion from within. The key thing is maintaining a balance. As we have touched upon the trouble, as we touched, op- as we have touched upon, the trouble arises for us and those around us when hunger becomes our dominant life condition. When the need for get more possessions that more material benefits becomes the main motivational force in our life, we can pursue it with little or no regard for the damage we do to our own values or what effect we might have on the lives of those around us. Buddhism is blunt about this kind of hunger. It describes greed as a poison in our system, indeed, one of the three primary prison poisons That can infect our lives and become the source of immense and long-lasting pain and suffering oh sorry about that (laughs) let's wait for that to pass because i'm on the main street i'm sorry okay here we go the other two are anger and foolishness we all have them in our lives to a greater or lesser degree the more these poisons exist in our own lives the more we will see them reflected back in our lives from our environment Greedy people, for example, tend to see the whole world as being greedy. From their perspective, they're simply doing what comes naturally. Angry people often wonder why everyone is so angry and bad-tempered. But let's stay with greed for a moment because it has become so fashionable, if I may put it that way. It is, of course, the very basis of the great flood tide of consumerism that has swept us along and into into record levels of personal debt and record levels of personal bankruptcies but since the acquisition of a desired object is undeniably a pleasurable experience why is it more why isn't more acquisition more pleasurable and so on and so on to the realization of ultimate happiness a recently published study in the city of London looked at people's attitude to their salaries. When people earned sixty thousand and they were asked what salary they thought they would be happy with, it turned out to be over a hundred thousand. Those who earned a hundred thousand thought that they would be be happy if only they could earn around two hundred and fifty thousand. Wow. Those who have already earned two hundred fifty thousand felt that they could really be very happy if they topped the million mark. Happiness, it seems, by the consumist route, can always be just out of reach. A whole series of American studies into the nature of human happiness, carried out in recent years, have de- de- delivered very similar results. One basic needs has been met. It seems that. Additional income, even substantial amounts of it did, did little or nothing to raise the sense of happiness or satisfaction with life, and more and more studies in this area tends to confirm its validity. however, desirable wealth wealth and possessions may seem they seem they are simply not enough. The Buddhist teaching in this area is immensely realistic and down to earth, it argues that whatever delight may come from a consumerism it can only be short-lived it wears off as soon as the novelty of possession has worn off and is replaced by the hunger for the next acquisition by definition a constant state of hunger can only lead to deep unhappiness essentially therefore buddhism argues that the greatest joy in life comes from making and giving rather than taking making and creating value that is out of the here and now out of our present circumstances rather being dependent upon what is in the showroom window so in tune with modern psychology to approach this issue from a slightly different direction it is fundamental to buddhist teaching that the way we look at any situation or any environment is of the very greatest importance that is to say it is not so much the external circumstances that govern how it affects us but how we see it it is not so much what happens that causes us to suffer as how we respond to what happens buddhism teaches therefore that as we develop and strengthen the inconspicuous benefits within our lives the wisdom and courage and resilience and the compassionate positive outlook so we develop the ability to transform any environment we find ourselves in. Out of this we can create what the management gurus call a virtuous circle, a win-win situation. For as long as we are under stress in our own lives we don't really have much time and space for others. As we change and develop the ability to handle our own situations with courage and resilience So we have more resource left over to speak with which to support and encourage others. Moreover, we seem to find many more opportunities for doing so from simply sharing experiences to giving moral and emotional support and devoting real time and energy to their problems, giving and making rather than taking and consuming. And Buddhism teaches paradoxically That exerting ourselves in this way, focusing outwards rather than inwards, concerning ourselves with the problems of others rather than concentrating solely on our own difficulties and concerns, is what leads to the most rapid growth in our own inner strength and resourcefulness. Buddhism may have been promoting this idea for somewhat somewhat longer, but it it is amply supported by the work of many modern psychologists. Professor Richard Layard, for example, is in in his book entitled Happiness, makes it a central plank in his argument for a new moral code. This should be the core of moral education so that our children understand that what they give to life is more important than what they get from it. With that psychology, they will in fact remain happier as modern psychology shows. Sonja Subonsarki Research psychologist at UCLA is inclined to agree. As a result of his own and other research findings, she places acts of support to others very high on her list of actions that lead to greater level of individual sa- satisfaction with life. Being kind to others, whether friends or strangers, triggers a cascade of positive positive effects. It makes you feel generous and capable giving you a greater sense of connection with others and wins wins you smiles approval and reciprocated kindness there are two key phases there that relate directly to our argument positive effects and reciprocated kindness since they both refer precisely to changes in the behavior of others changes that is say in the environment triggered by our behavior We can accept quite readily, I think, that there is a constant interaction or interplay between ourselves and the society of the environment immediately around us. Since most of us have direct experience of it, we can all recount instances where our anger or our joy has spilled over into those around us and sparked off an instant response. And we all know people who tend to carry their gloom and despondency or their abundant optimism around with them like a suitcase and spill it out into every room they walk into. Fundamental changes in attitude and behavior are undoubtedly extremely difficult to achieve. But as we change and develop spiritually, so we find that we have a greater capacity to see and understand other people's needs. Or have greater resources or compassion to respond to other people's problems. So that was really deep. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that myself. But that's the end of chapter 10. And so tomorrow, chapter 11, a long and healthy life. So until tomorrow.